Good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning and to uh, spend this time studying God's Word together. It's a little rickety, but we'll manage. Folks, I'm... <laughs> somebody over here said, aren't we all? I do appreciate the opportunity to speak this morning, to look into God's Word and to see what it says to us today. We're in a, a series that's based on our core values, our core values being love God, love people, make disciples, and make a difference. And we try and deal with these core values at the beginning of each fall semester, so sort of late summer, this time frame each year. We get into the core values to, to confirm that this is who we are and what we believe and where we're going as a congregation. The pastor did love God a couple weeks ago. Pastor Brian Smith did love people last week, and then this week is make disciples. And I'm pleased to report that Dr. Jackson is going to be back in the pulpit next week to end the series, and so it'll be nice to have him back with us. Um, we've missed him, and uh, it's been a tough season for that family. As I prepared for this time of studying God's Word this morning, I was reminded of my own family business that we've got going on right now. I, I come from a long line of farmers. Uh, apparently, I was supposed to farm, but God had a different plan for my life. And, and so, we've just successfully transitioned the family farm from my dad and uncles to my cousin Tom, and that'll be the fourth generation of Tolliver who's going to be leading that family business. And, and Tom is actually doing a great job right now. He's got a, a, an idea of where we need to go. He can see out on the horizon. He, he's got some plans in place to, to uh, continue that legacy and to continue that business. But his leadership is not a coincidence. Tom is, is just like myself, growing up on that farm, but over the last decade, my dad and uncles have been preparing him to lead. They've been spending time with him, mentoring him, giving him bigger and bigger projects to take on. And now that he's leading the family farm and, and the older generation is out, Tom is already starting to think about who will lead the farm after him. Family business is hard, you all. If, if you know, you know. You know what I'm talking about. Where family business is tough, where you've got your elders in the business, you've got your kids in the business, and, and it, takes, it takes some commitment to the bigger picture. It takes some appreciation for the work of what your elders did and showing them respect, but, but being ready to move in a new direction as, as the world changes. It requires you to have a little bit of a sense of place in a longer story, if that makes sense. But four generations of Tolliver farmers is nothing compared to the oldest family business in the world. I don't know if you've heard of this. It's called the Kangagumi Company, and it's based in Osaka, Japan. It's a construction company, and they incorporated in the year 576 A.D. They, no, it's, they've been in business for 1,445 years, same family, generation to generation to generation, and, and it's still in operation today, 40 generations of leadership in that company. And, and now, nowadays, it's a subsidiary of a larger construction company, but the Congo family still manages and runs that division, and there's still somebody with a family name, direct line, all the way back to the founder. And it's a cool story, but what caught my attention as I was doing some, some preparation for this morning was the commitment to legacy. 
because each person in this chain had to see themselves as both a recipient of something valuable, a recipient of the legacy, and then they had to see themselves as a steward in the present moment, responsible to those ahead and those behind, and then they also, as a third thing, had to be an equipper of the next generation so that when the time came, they would be ready to step aside and the enterprise would continue. Each leader had to be thinking about the bigger picture. And so each chairman that took the reins of the company immediately had to start thinking about training a successor. And once they were the leader, thinking about who would follow along behind. And so in, in this company that I took a quick look at, 40 different people have acted as stewards, preserving the knowledge and the experience and the trade secrets and the lessons learned and, and all of the stuff that goes into a successful enterprise. I mean, I marvel that my family didn't kill each other through four generations of family business transitioning from one generation to the next, and this company has done it 40 times, and now they're preparing their 41st leader. What an amazing story. This morning, as we begin to study God's Word together, I want to work with those ideas I just suggested, receiving something of value, stewarding it in the present, and then being prepared to develop successors and transition to them. And believe it or not, most of us have an experience like that. Maybe you've built a business or a professional practice, uh, you've, you've worked on some new project or program that, that was valuable to you. And it doesn't even have to be business-related. I mean, students, you all have dealt with clubs, you've been involved in sports teams, and different, different things where you've gotten involved and been able to use your energy and your passion to, to make it advance. Um, and we've all had something like that, I think, where we became part of something that was meaningful to us. You know, maybe we, we bought into the mission or we saw what was going on and we found that it spoke to us in a way that drew us in and wanted us to get involved. And so we got into these things because they mattered, because they were significant, because they, they spoke to us. We saw the need to contribute. And maybe God had laid it on your heart at some point to, to uh, get involved in an organization or group or club or team or whatever it was because God showed you something that there was a need and gave you a heart for that work. Maybe, maybe you were at some point were attracted to the vision. Somebody, somebody cast a vision that you attracted, uh, that attracted you, and then now you're involved in that thing. And when we engage, it really does become our thing. You take a sense of ownership of it, and hopefully, if you really do it right, it begins to be a little bit life-giving, energizing. And when that happens, that's good, good stuff. I'm personally, for reasons I cannot quite articulate, I'm passionate about food security in West Africa. It's something that I saw, got interested in, got invested in, and as luck would have it, our mission partner, Jesse Tobadoya, is here this morning. Just, welcome him, would you? Thank you, Jesse. I, I'm about to make my fifth trip back, and listen, if, just on a side note, if you've got some handy skills and you want to get out of your comfort zone, we're going to go build another irrigation system over there this winter. Talk to me in the lobby or talk to Jesse after the service. Back to, but there's a moment when you're involved in something of significance to you, something that, that sparks an, a heartbeat that, that is outside yourself. Sooner or later, though, 
you've got this investment, this, this commitment, this energy out of this enterprise, this business, this club, this organization, this project, this program, this ministry, whatever it is, there comes a moment when sooner or later, and usually not when we expect it, that it's time to move on. There's this moment where you don't quite have the same passion that you used to have. You don't have the same focus on it. You begin to have your attention on other things. Sometimes just life happens. The season ends. We can't contribute the way we used to. We can't engage the way we used to. And it's kind of common. It's, it's, it's part of that shared experience that we all have. If, if you've been into something long enough, your club, your program, your organization, your business, your professional practice, whatever it is, we come face-to-face -face with this moment where we can't continue doing it. And inevitably, we have this question in our mind, what happens next? What happens to all the time that I spent? What happens to all the things that I committed and invested? What happens to all of that? I mean, because you want it to matter. You want the thing to continue. But what happens to the time you put in and the energy you put in? What about all the relationships that you started and these connections that you have? What about all those hours of volunteer time and overtime and missed family vacations and, and canceled trips because your thing needed you? We all feel that because we've built something valuable. We've built something successful. How do we ensure that our work is not lost, that the time and the energy and the effort is gone? How, how do we make sure that the thing continues when we're not in the picture anymore? You still with me? I see, some, I see some nods. We want it to continue because we put a lot of effort into it. But when you can't continue, Sometimes students, maybe you've graduated, you've done a club, and, and now it's time to go to college or to, to do something else with your life. What happens to the thing that you put all the time and energy into? That question is a really common experience. And the answer is, in a secular world, you would begin thinking in terms of transition. You would do something called succession planning. You would look for the next person and prepare them. You call that a handoff. There's, there's work of mentoring, there's work of coaching. All of these things describe the continuity when you can't do the thing anymore. And as followers of Jesus, when it comes to your Christian experience, the answer to that same question is discipleship. Sometimes we think of discipleship as being about evangelism, but really that's not quite right. Evangelism is part of the process, but evangelism is like this little tiny step one where you heard something, understood something, God moved in your life, and you began to feel like you needed to follow Christ. You needed to claim Him as your Lord and Savior. But after that moment, for the rest of your life, that process is called discipleship. And when discipleship is done right, there's somebody ahead of you on the journey who's investing in you, who's preparing you, who's equipping you, who's sharing their experiences and their disappointments and frustrations and, and victories with you. And at the same time, if you're doing it right, there's somebody behind you who's not as far along on their journey of faith, and that somebody needs your encouragement and your affirmation and your wisdom, your encouragement, your support, and, and it's that person that you're investing in. 
And I, I tend to like this analogy of a journey, that as you're walking along the path as a follower of Christ, there's always some people that are ahead of you on the path, and there's always a couple of people behind you on the path. And, and I think that analogy will help us as we look into God's Word this morning. And, and God's Word speaks clearly about discipleship. It, that theme flows throughout the, the, the arc of, of Scripture. And Abraham, for example, Abraham poured into Isaac, Isaac poured into Jacob, Jacob poured into Joseph, that, that great-grandfather, grandfather, father and son, that, that, that story where each of them showed the next what it was like to live according to righteousness and to look for God and to seek God's heart and to lead the family well. And so each of those sons learned from the father. And there's other examples in Scripture. You've got Naomi who led Ruth. I got that backwards on the slide. Elijah who poured into Elisha. And, and dozens of examples in the New Testament as well. But there's one that I want to focus on this morning, and I want to spend some time in that. It's in the book of Exodus, and I would invite you to take out your Bibles, uh, use your mobile device. I'll also have the words up here. But I'd like for us to look into Exodus. It's chapter 18, and to spend that time together in the Word. As you're getting ready, I, I suggested earlier that when disciple-making is done right, that there's always a more mature mentor ahead of you on the journey, and there's someone coming along behind who needs what you have to offer. And I hope you'll hold on to that analogy, that, that picture as we look into the Word. Brief backstory, so that you're sort of caught up as we enter Exodus 18. This is the point in Scripture where Israel has escaped from Egypt. The, the big let my people go moment, that's already, that's already happened. Moses has had a showdown with Pharaoh. God has uh, put the plagues over Egypt until Pharaoh finally agreed to let the people go. The first Passover has already occurred. There's a bunch of used chariots in the bottom of the Red Sea. And God, God is now in the business of nation building with two million former slaves who have no idea what it means to live together, how to govern themselves, how to worship, how to live, how to be a consecrated people for God. And, and for that work, God raised up Moses. God had him in the right place so that he grew up in Pharaoh's household and he learned what it was and how the Egyptian systems work. And then God took him out into the desert and poured into him and prepared him and put people around him to lead Israel. And so Moses has had the confrontations with Pharaoh and he's led his people out of bondage. It's, it's a powerful moment in Scripture. And now, as we enter the text this morning, the Israelites are camped out in the wilderness of Sinai, just east of Egypt, and they're out in front of the holy mountain of God. And I'd like to start with verse 5 as we look into the text together. And as we begin to study, let me invite you to be on the lookout as we're talking this morning, looking for examples where Jethro is discipling Moses. That's what I want you to be on the lookout for. Verse 5, Moses' father-in-law Jethro, along with Moses' wife and sons, came to him in the wilderness where he was camped at the mountain of God. He sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. And so Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, and he bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other how they had been, and they went into the tent. 
Moses, because he, he knows he's going to have his showdown with the Pharaoh, sent his wife and two sons out and away to be with her father so that they would be protected while he was in the midst of this, this tough situation in Egypt. And so it's the first time that this family has been together in months and months and months. And you can almost kind of imagine this scene. You know, Moses just overjoyed to see his wife and children. They're safe. They're healthy. And it, it's a very, very tender moment in Scripture. It, I don't quite know what to make of verse 7 because it says that Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and he bowed down in front of him and kissed him. Maybe that's cultural. I, but for me to bow down before my father-in-law is a little awkward. But, but you, can, you can feel how significant this moment is, a sign of respect as Moses has this uh, reconnection. In verse 8, now Moses recounted to his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that confronted them on the way and how the Lord delivered them. Jethro received rejoiced over all the good things the Lord had done for Israel when he rescued them from the power of the Egyptians. Praise the Lord, Jethro exclaimed, who rescued you from Pharaoh and the power of the Egyptians and snatched the people from the power of the Egyptians. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods because he did wonders when the Egyptians acted arrogantly against Israel. And again, I, I want you to kind of imagine that scene that after this long absence and time apart, Moses is there with his father-in-law, whom he, whom he respects a great deal, and Moses begins giving him the blow-by-blow blow of what it was like to be called by God and, and to have this confrontation with Pharaoh and to lead the people out of bondage. And, and you know, I just have to, in my mind's eye, see this, this blow-by-blow, and Moses like, you know, and, and God told me to do this, and I went to see Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said this, and then I said, well, God said this, and then God sent a plague, and then Pharaoh called me back and said, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's an amazing story, and it's, it's actually the last 12 chapters of Exodus, if you want the, the backstory, because it's, it, it goes on for chapter after chapter of this whole experience that Moses has been through. And Moses is giving him the whole blow-by-blow, blow, and Jethro's hearing it for the first time. And in this moment, church, this is important, in this moment, Jethro does something that is so important for an older man to do for a younger man. Jethro is listening to all the stuff Moses is saying. And as Moses recounts the story, Jethro listens, encourages, and affirms him. Younger, younger women, when you hear affirmation from an older woman to say you're doing a good job, you're handling that well, you're doing good professionally, you're being a good mom, that is life-giving for a younger woman. And, and the same is true for an older man, and I think in perhaps men need that even more than women do, where an older man says to a younger man, you are making me proud, you are doing a good job, I am impressed with what you've accomplished, and young men desperately need that from older men whom they respect. And so Jethro gives that to Moses. You can see it here in the text. He listens, he affirms, and then verse 10, verse 10, Jethro points it back where it needs to be. Praise the Lord, Jethro exclaimed. Brings it back to what God is doing, and if we continue there in the text, then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel 
to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in God's presence. So you see, they had a, a time of worship together. They had some time of prayer, some sacrifice, and then they sat down and broke bread together. All of the things that are so important in a discipling relationship. And pay attention now, because this is where things really get interesting. Discipleship is not always about encouragement and affirmation and saying, hey, good job. Sometimes discipleship is about discipline. I'll say that it's even a vital part of discipleship. As long as it's done in the right spirit, as long as it's done in moderation, and as long as it's done with grace, that's important because it doesn't help to jump in and say, here's all the things you did wrong. But Jethro handles that perfectly. The next day, Moses goes back to work, and this is where it happens. Moses sat down to judge the people. I'm in verse 13. And they stood around Moses from morning until evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw everything he was doing for them, he asked, what is this thing you are doing for the people? Why are you alone sitting as judge while all the people stand around from morning until evening? Moses replied to his father-in-law, well, the people, uh, because the people come to me to inquire of God. Whenever they have a dispute, it comes to me, and I make a decision between one man and another. I teach them God's statutes. Here it comes. Verse 17, what you are doing is not good, Moses' father-in-law said to him. You will certainly wear out both yourself and these people who are with you because the task is too heavy. You cannot do it alone. And here Jethro could see something that Moses could not. Moses incorrectly assumed that because he was the leader, he had to do all the stuff himself. And the older, wiser man with a bit more life experience looked at the bigger picture and said, in effect, this is not going to work, but there is a better way, and let me say it. And so Jethro goes on in verse 19, now listen to me. I will give you some advice, and God be with you. You be the one to represent the people before God and bring their cases to him. Instruct them about the statutes and laws. Teach them the way to live and what they must do. But you should seek from all the people, abled men, God-fearing, trustworthy, and hating bribes. Place them over the people as commanders of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. They should judge the people at all times, and then they can bring you every important case, but judge the minor case themselves. In this way, you will lighten your load, and they will bear it with you. If you do this, and God so directs you, you will be able to endure and all these people will be able to go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. Verse 25, so Moses chose able men from all Israel and made them leaders over the people as commanders of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. They judged the people at all times. They would bring the hard cases to Moses, but they would judge every minor case themselves. Verse 27, then Moses said goodbye to his father-in-law, and he journeyed back to his own land. One good final act of discipleship, Jethro spoke, said his peace, and then stepped back and left Moses to lead. And the narrative ends at this point in the text, but even as Jethro was discipling Moses, 
Moses was himself investing in a younger man. We first see his name in the last chapter, a previous chapter of Exodus, chapter 17. He was leading a small military mission. His name was Joshua. And over time, Moses would give him bigger roles, more responsibility, bigger opportunities, and eventually it would be Joshua who stepped into the role of leadership and led the people into the promised land. All of that, just as God had designed, an older man coaching, encouraging, supporting a younger leader for the benefit of his wisdom, and then the current leader investing in mentoring and training a successor. It's a beautiful example of multi-generational discipleship. And we see that same process occurring in the New Testament as well. Men and women discipling new generations of spiritual leaders. We see that with Priscilla and Aquila mentoring Apollos. And Barnabas investing in Paul and Paul investing in Timothy and Timothy becoming the pastor at Ephesus and mentoring and training other disciples and disciple makers. Paul sharing the gospel with Lydia who then hosted the church, the first church in Europe in her home in Philippi multi-generational disciple-making. And you, each of you, you are inheritors, stewards in the moment, and transmitters of that experience. In Matthew 28, we call it the Great Commission. Go ye therefore into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Ghost, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, And lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. If you are a follower of Jesus today, it is because someone else took those instructions to heart. And and if, if you want to go all the way back, there were 12 disciples following Jesus, right? Each of those disciples after the crucifixion went out to share the good news with other people, to make disciples. And those 12 told others who told others who told others. And 60, 70, 80 generations later, some disciple got made. Somebody poured into someone who thought it was worthwhile to share that with you. And so you are part of an unbroken chain of disciple makers all the way back to the cross. And and I I would challenge you to just kind of think about that. Jesus intended that that work continue until he returns. Paul said it this way, That should continue until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son growing into a mature person with stature measured in Christ's fullness, Ephesians 4. And and listen, I, I hope that you're hearing something in this story this morning, the idea that you are part of a much longer chain of discipleship that has stretched 2,000 years back into history and will continue until Christ returns. And, and that if we're going to be successful and if we're going to do it right, there's got to be spiritual mentors in your life who are investing in you, and there need to be others who are coming along behind you into whom you invest. There's going to be people behind you on this journey of faith, people who are watching you, and a lot of them are sitting right here. People will watch how you live your life, how you disciple others, and they will learn how to do that by watching others who are more mature as followers of Christ. They will take their cues from you, and they will need mentoring so that they can become disciple makers too. And so church, I have a challenge for you this morning, and I mean this. On the back of your bulletin, pull it out if you grabbed one coming through the door, get your bulletins out. I mean it, pull them out, take out your bulletins. And if you don't have a bulletin, 
notepad on your phone or a scrap piece of paper, but get ready to write something down. Y'all ready? I challenge you this morning to write down four names. I challenge you to write down the names of two people to whom you are accountable, older people, more mature believers who are pouring into your life. I, I challenge you to name those two people, the ones that you will listen to, that you will take correction from, that mentor you, whom you see as your spiritual inspirations. And after you get those two names, I'd invite you to write down two more names of people whom you are discipling, two people into whom you are investing time, two people into whom you are spending effort, two people into whom you are offering encouragement and the occasional, occasional gentle correction. Church, what would it look like if all of us were in healthy discipling relationships? Where could this church go? Where would we be in another 50 or 100 years nurturing others on that journey and being very intentional about it? What sort of legacy would you leave to your spiritual successors? And the same principle applies to marriage ministry. If we had a mature couple who was investing in a younger couple that was trying to figure out what it's like to be married and to raise kids, what would that look like, church, if we were intentional about that process? Offering counsel, encouragement, guidance, being a blessing to others. And so, church, who's in front of you? Who's behind you? Who is your Jethro? Who is your Joshua? And if you don't have four names on your piece of paper, that's okay. It just means you have some work to do. Let's leave it here. I'll offer an invitation. If you are trying to figure out what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, if, if something's tugging on your heart, you feel like God's doing something in your life, I'm going to be in the lobby right after the service, and I would like to have a conversation with you about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and to be a disciple maker in time. And if you're trying to figure out what your next steps are on this journey of faith, let's have that conversation. Our pastors are going to be around. They're going to be in the lobby after and I hope that you'll stop and speak with us. We really would like to spend that time with you. Church, will you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to see how you've been at work over the arc of, of history, how you've created us for relationship, and that discipleship is the vehicle that you intended for us to help others become disciples. God, we thank you for the gift of your Son and for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, I pray that this service has been pleasing in your sight. We thank you for the opportunity to baptize a new member and to watch her take the first steps of discipleship. We pray a blessing upon her life as she grows into the fullness that you have for her and that one day she might be a disciple maker. We thank you for the example of baptism and for what that means to us. We ask you now to bless us as we close this time. For it's in Jesus' name we do all of these things. Amen.